Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 108, and we're going to be interviewing Samuel G. How you doing, Samuel? I'm all right. I'm blessed. I'm highly favored. I'm glad How to hear you? that you're doing well. So let's dive in here. Tell me about growing up. How was your childhood? Um, well, I was in a single parent household in a pretty rough neighborhood, Park Hill on Staten Island. Um, it was, you know, it was rough, man. You know, I used to have to fight. When we first moved there, I had to fight to get to the bus stop. Um, my mother and father were getting divorced. Who are, you, who are you getting into fights with? Um, kids in the neighborhood. They were picking the other on kids, you? The other young kids in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah, definitely. I was a sensitive kid. You know, I, I you know, um, I wasn't really um, outgoing. I wasn't, I wasn't violent. I was, you know, I was, you know, just a chubby kid, man, you know, and uh, like laughing. So I got um, moved from Queens. And I was a five or six, six years. So it was, it was like a whole different type. You know, I went from a house to projects, you know, and it was like, it was like a big, a big, you know, culture shock for me. What made you go to the projects? Is that after your parents got divorced? That's where my mother moved. When she left my father, she moved into um, one building, um, um, 55 was a single building, and then she moved from there to, to 350 Vanderbilt. And um, she, uh, you know, she had me and my little brother, and, you know, she was a single mom, man. And it was, um, you know, it was hard. I'd say around 77, 1977, 76, 77. And, um, you know, um, it, it was rough, you know, lights going out, plugging the extension cord in the hallway for electricity, you know, fighting to keep it in because kids would pull it out. Um, my father was an alcoholic, so um, the alcoholism runs in my family really, um, really hard. So it was kind of, you know, a lot of arguing, uh, you know, one day my father came to see us and uh, my mother went and opened the door. So he kicked the big metal door and it like seized shut. We had to like get the, the maintenance man and they had to get all types of um, people to get the door open. Uh, so, you know, it was just, you know, they, everybody has rough childhoods. You know, I had a lot of love though. You know, I had you know, a lot of family members around me, my aunts, my grandmother, you know, and and my brother, my brother is because my mother had my um, second brother after they divorced, yeah, you know, my second brother, my youngest one. It's about 40, 40 now. So How old are you? It's I'm 53. I'm 53. Um, I had my first drink when I was nine. I got it from my father, it was an old English. Um, I started smoking weed around 12, started sniffing cocaine around 13. So your dad gave you your first beer? Yeah, 
in my first beer. You know, told me I was on Junction Boulevard in Corona, Queens. He said, you gotta down this beer before we hit the corner. And I still remember to this day how my eyes, you know, flooded with tears because of the beer I got. It was a 16 ounce old English and I had to, you know, pound it down. And um, it didn't taste good. I, I just, I did it because that's what I thought men do, you know? And that, that was my impression. You know, uh, you know, and then, you know, from there it started, you know, any family gathering, weddings, um, you know, funerals, you know, adults put the glasses down, we'd run around, take, take the glasses, drink the drinks. It was, you know, um, that's how it started, you know, um, around 14, you know, things got kind of crazy. I, I you know, I, I ran, I ran away. I started running away. I started, you know, hanging in the streets. Why'd you run away? Telling drugs. Um, because my mother, she worked for the police department and she got hurt. And so I was basically taking care of her and um, taking care of my brothers. Um, I would wake up, you know, how they deliver the newspapers early in the morning. So I would wake up and I would um, steal all of the newspapers, take them down to the ferry, you know, get um, go over there on the other side, and I'd sell the newspapers so that I, I could get back in time for when my brothers woke up. You know, they'd have, you know, they'd have food, you know, and uh, so, but I was, you know, smoking weed at this time. People sold joints on the ferry, and, you know, it was a neighborhood thing, and everybody knew everybody. So, you know, I pretty much did what I had to do. You know, and that, that was right around that time. That's when I got into uh, selling weed and then other things, you know, that was in the 80s. So, you know, how, old were you? Right. how old were you when you started selling weed? Around 12. I started selling joints on the ferry. By nickel bag. <laughs> there was a newspaper and a joint. Yep. When That's I see more was going on. <laughs> See what was going on, why not? You know? Yeah. Everybody was smoking. That's what they needed before they went to work. They needed a joint in the morning, and that's what it was, you know? Yeah. So I did that, and, uh, you know, I ran away. I started, you know, I started selling crack around 14 and 15. Started selling crack. Um, this is when. Um, Jamaicans, Trinidadians, you know, an influx of those, you know, people from Jamaica, Trinidad, and I uh, started selling crack. Um, around that time, that's when I started smoking, but I was smoking it with weed. I wasn't smoking it out of a pipe or anything like that. So, so what, you were just putting coke in weed? Yeah, no, coke or crack. Roll it up in a blunt and smoke it like that, you know. All the coke, snow cones, called the crack woolers. And uh, it was like a thing, you know, everybody, in the beginning, everybody was doing it. In the beginning, everybody around my age was doing it until, you know, it got uh, it got too much when they started to see the effects that um, the crack was having on the adults in the neighborhood. It became like, you know, a no-no, you know, and um, people, you know, Started became like a taboo thing, 
you know, around 15, 16. You know, there was a lot of, like any other, you know, project, a lot of gunfights, a lot of, you know, fighting. You know, I caught my first charge when I was 15, first robbery charge when I was 15. Um, my mother you had them, uh, huh? I robbed the person. You robbed the person. Yeah. Um, and it was, um, you know, she had them seal my records. Um, you know, the case went on for about a year. She had them seal my records. And I, I signed up, 15 or 16, I signed up for the delayed entry program um, into the military. You know, at that time, I, you know, I was being, you know, they were looking for me there because of the, you know, the violence that was going on in the neighborhood. Um, you know, they had put a contract out on me. You know, the Jamaican guys put a contract out on me. And, um, you know, and so I I broke out, you know, because I had family, my little brothers and everything. I joined the army out of the frying pan into the fire. This was when um, first Gulf War was about to kick off. And um, so I did that. That's when my drinking, um, you know, escalated, went through the roof. Um, and, so you were in the army? Yeah. I was in during the first Gulf War. Did you get deployed? Did you get deployed over there? No, I never left the Americas. I never left the Americas. I was um, over here. No, I never left the Americas. Um, it's not, you know, it was a time in my life. You know, I go back to, you know, they they still uh, they still help me. The VA still assists me. You know. Um, so you were married. Um, yeah, I was married. I at seventeen, I got married. So the VA, you know, um, I came back, you know, here, you know, to the city, and uh, you know, my girlfriend at the time, she got pregnant, and I married her, and yeah, my first son was born when I was seventeen. Um, I got um, discharged from the military for being, um, you know, too violent, too aggressive, you know, wouldn't follow orders, you know. Who's, who's going to follow the rules of engagement? Nah. That wasn't my thing. So I was like, I was rebellious anyway. So um, I got an honorable discharge, though. I came out, I started working for um, a carding company, trash removal company called Manzo. And um, when I got my, instead of, and I signed up for, because I was a medic. I was a combat medic, so I, I signed up for the classes to be a paramedic uh, EMT at LaGuardia College. Um, I passed the test, and but instead of going, you know, I, I was supposed to start it. I started selling drugs again in my neighborhood, and that didn't work out too well because I definitely uh, I went from alcohol and coke to smoking crack like a mad Russian. And it was um, all downhill from there. It was all downhill from there. I went to my first treatment center in, in uh, around 1990, which was JCAP in Queens. And um, well, what Albans. happened? You said it was all downhill from there. What kind of stuff happened that led downhill? <laughs> um, I just, I, I was spending money. I was staying up. Um, I, I wouldn't get any sleep. I was going to work all week, getting off on the weekends, um, sitting up, smoking crack, you know, so selling crack and smoking crack. Um, 
I'm getting into, you know, fights. I'm getting into all type of, you know, drama um, at the time because it was very, the neighborhood was very um, crime-ridden at the time. Um, Paul Kill at the time. And um, it was a lot of violence, a lot of things happening. And um, I wasn't being, you know, I, I, there was no way for me to be, you know, a good father to a baby or, you know, so uh, my mother, you know, asked me to um, go into treatment. And um, what oh, happened man. was I caught a charge. Uh-huh. At this time, she's 18, 19, 20, about 20, 20, okay. 21, 2021, okay. my uh, my, um, I caught a charge and my mother actually got me, um, she got me to, um, mandated to um, JCAP. She knew the judge. My mother was very into politics and very like community activist like, like that. And she got me, um, you know, the chance to go to JCAP. So I went to JCAP. What is JCAP? Um, I was there for, um, JCAP was a therapeutic community in Queens, in St. Albans, Queens. And now I got to tell you, when I went there, See, this is the thing. They were giving you drinking privileges. Isn't that amazing? 1990, you went there. If you got to re-entry in the program, you got to go out and you got drinking privileges. Crazy, right? This was, this was treatment. And um, so I had this picture in my head of, you know, these people coming back from their passes on the weekend and they, you know, laughing and joking, coming from going out for a night drinking, you know, okay? So this is where, you know, drugs was demonized and alcohol was still considered social, you know? Like it, was, it wasn't, you know, the, the, the whole um, disease concept was not, you know, it was like more of a behavioral thing that went with addiction at that time. It was starting to trend, you know, um, they, they were starting to move over, like from that therapeutic community concept to a disease concept, um, you know, uh, when it came to the, you know, addiction. And um, that kind of left a stigma in my mind where I didn't group alcohol with drugs. You know, it was like, okay, if I stop smoking crack, if I stop smoking dust, if I stop sniffing coke um, and I could just drink, then I'm normal. I'm not like, like normal people. So that set off and left a seed in my mind that, kept me unable to really commit to recovery. Like the other day I was off, I recalled my sponsor because I, I, I'm forgiving myself. Like, you know, I moved on. Um, I have my sober date is April 13th, 2021. I have a little bit, yeah, but I've had three years before. I've had two years, 16 months. You know, and you notice it goes down. Like it's, it went from three years on down, you know. Um, and in between, like you talk about three decades, in between they had um, a few prison stays, um, a lot of jail, a lot of Rikers Island, um, a lot of arrests. What know, kind of stuff? Um, what kind of stuff were you getting arrested for? Um, mostly assaults. I didn't really catch. I got like two drug charges, possessions, but um, assault from fighting and robberies. I had you know a robbery, two robbery charges. Uh, my first robbery charge, I was, um, was, you know, I had Virginia, Maryland, Delaware. You know, I had, had robbery charges up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, 
I got extradited to Virginia and I caught a 17 year, I caught 17 years. They suspended, um, they suspended nine and um, I, I made first parole. But when I made parole, I had to go to Maryland. So they extradited me from Virginia to Maryland. When I got to Maryland, they gave me a million dollar bond. And, um, you know, it's so funny, you know, it's, the, the guy asked me for my autograph. The cop or the marshal dropped me off and transferred me to the cop. The cop that was taking me um, down to the thing asked me for my autograph for his son. Uh, he was like, you know, I don't get to be, I don't get to be around guys like you very often. I said, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? He's like, no, you're a celebrity out here. I'm like, okay. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> but um, it was um. You know, so I, but I, I got, I, I, I managed to, um, you know, I didn't get, I got charged with a lot of robberies in, um, in Maryland, but um, I didn't, it, I didn't get convicted of any, so I, I got, I got out of that, I got out of there, and I came back, you know, to New York, and um, I was on the interstate compact, um, I stayed clean for a couple of weeks, but. You know, when I came back, it was like South Central. My my first wife, I went in there, you know, she was smoking crack and, you know, my my, my the apartment I left, you know, with my children looked like a crack house. It was a crack house. It was that looked like. Um, there was no lock on the door. It was dark, you know, it it was it this is what I came back to, you know, and um I I relapsed. I went back you know, back to smoking back into the street and again downhill from there like um because I always let me just say I always looked at it as a matter of will like, I always looked at it like you know um it was a matter of me being weak weak-minded I, you know a, a point of, of you know I had to you know get myself under control um I didn't wrap my head around the disease concept and I didn't commit to um abstain and and you know, sincere sobriety until just recently. Like every time I got sober, it was until I got my life together. So I could, you know, maybe smoke a joint here, there, maybe have a drink around holidays. So it was never, there was always a reservation. It was never a sincere commitment to recovery. Well, you know, um, and that kept me on the, on the merry-go-round, you know, um, First wife, you know, things leveled out. Back to jail. She, you know, we wound up splitting up. You know, we wound up splitting up. Uh, let me see, about 16 years ago when I'm, I'm with my second wife now. Um, I was like, you know, around 50,000, around 36, 35, 36. And um, I met her coming. I met my second wife in uh, Samaritan Village. I went to Samaritan Village. I got mandated to Samaritan Village. What's another that? robbery charge. It's another therapeutic community. What do you mean by therapeutic community exactly? TC, therapeutic, they're long-term treatment centers. Therapeutic communities are where treatment for drugs? Um, yeah, drugs, okay. alcohol, or even like if you have a drug charge, um, they'll, they'll, they'll do it as like alternative to incarceration. Okay. You know, if you have like a nonviolent drug charge, sometimes robbery, people with robbery charge, if they're young, they can get them like, um, I don't know, you got um, Covenant House, Daytop, 
<laughs> Samaritan Village. These were eighteen and twenty-four month programs. Okay, and uh, you know, um, I, I did that, and um, I met my second wife, and you know, that's where I met her, and you know, like she's been in recovery for you know sixteen years. Well, say about fifteen because we left the program. I stayed clean. We got together. We used together and we used together. And um, you know, that see that there's the illusion because I maintained my job and um I had some type of illusion of control and which was an illusion because in 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 the big picture it still just gave me the confidence to use and not look at the progression of the disease. You know, because the progression always set in. The illusion of control, okay, yeah, I, you know, I I copped heavy, I went to the hotel, I used, I went out, I shopped, back to the hotel room. Sunday came around, I got up, I went to work, you know, until the next weekend. So thinking that I was in control kept me in that cycle of and believing like it was a matter of my will. And um, that's a, a not a good place to be because it's like it um, drags the people that love me through, you know, decades of being hostages and lining them up and I'll make, you know, I get clean, get my life together, stop using, they think everything's good. Next thing you know, I'm drunk. I'm like, oh, it's okay. I know what I'm doing. I got it. And now I'm putting them through the whole cycle all over again. You know, I have two young children now, um, 12 and 14, but I have grown sons. I have three grandchildren. You know, my oldest son, we don't talk, but um, he said there was never a time when you were in my life consistently. He had got injured and he uh, got addicted to opioids. So I, you know, he had, I went in, I went to see him in the hospital, OD, and seeing him hooked up to a, you know, to a ventilator, it's crazy. It's really a self-centered, um, disease is seated in, in in my mind, and it's this it's so it's it's such a selfish, self centered disease, the disease of addiction, because the denial is is deep. The veil of denial keeps kept me from seeing the damage that I was doing to the people around me. The lie, oh, it's just me, and then I would separate myself from the people I cared about. You know, disappear for months on end without a phone call or anything, and um, thinking that they were better off without me around them. Meanwhile, it's the back because now the kids are asking their mother, where's daddy? You know, she can't tell them where I'm at. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know if I'm in a ditch. She don't know if she's going to get a call from the precinct or, you know, or the hospital or, you know, she doesn't know what's going to happen. So um, being blind to that is what definitely perpetuated the um, self-loathing, the guilt, the shame that goes with addiction, um, and then being mired in that and not giving the sincere, being, being sincere to recovery um, blocked me from forgiving myself. Because like I said, how can I forgive myself knowing that I was going to do the same thing again? Because I had not made a commitment to stay, you know, to stay clean, not even stay abstinent. I was just staying clean until... 
until things were okay for me to use again. So how could I forgive myself if I knew I was do it again? I was good, but I would say, oh, it's not going to be the same way. It's not the same thing's not going to happen. This is a disease that is a spiritual malady as much as an emotional, physical, and mental addiction. Um, because then you, you you just I lost myself time and time again, and um, there was no progress. And what I came to understand is that um, from using from such a young age, I have no idea what feeling was. What is feeling? What is happiness? What is joy? You know, every good moment or every bad moment or every boring moment was accompanied by a drink or a drug. So I had no idea what genuine, authentic joy or sadness really was. Because as soon as a feeling I got confronted with one, I reached for something, I would reach for a substance. And so I shared at a meeting last night, I attend AA. AA is like, I attend NEA actually. I call it the recovery community, you know, but um, AA is where I hang my hat. Um, I shared that, okay, my son, he's 12, but um, he knows I'm an alcoholic and he knows that when I was in treatment, and, um, you know, he plays hockey, he plays football. So I get the bro hug, you know what I'm saying? Um, he hugged me and, and it, it was, you know, I thought I was going to get the hug. So, but then he hugged me tighter. And then I went, you know, when I hugged him again, I hugged, he hugged me tighter. And his head was like just, and it was the best feeling in the world. Like, you know, like a, hundred, a shot of 100 proof vodka going down. <laughs> that one feeling just without the burn. So that was a genuine, you know, experience of, of feeling, you know, um, um, feeling like I, people share, they still struggle. Like dude got nine years. He's like, oh, but I miss smoking weed. I don't miss smoking weed. I don't miss drinking. I don't miss smoking crack. I don't miss smoking dust. I don't miss smoking crystal meth. I don't miss, if you had drugs, I don't miss huffing the spray cans. If there was a drug, and you was doing it, I wanted some, you know? And uh, my last run, God rest this guy, he died. Like, and he wasn't doing dope, you know? And uh, he wanted to, to, to rest and he rested and, and, and I was talking to my brother and I went to wake him up and I couldn't wake him up. And, uh, but I, you know, I didn't, you know, um, and, you know and, and people asked me, well, why didn't you take the money? Why would I take the money? I mean. Don't get me wrong. It's not like the thought didn't, you know, go through my mind. I've been up for a week. I'm getting high. This guy got thousands of dollars on a ran to the ATM over and over again. And I know, you know, that, you know, his ATM card and the money's in his pocket. You know, I couldn't, I, that's not me though. It never has been me. Um, even though I was a robber, that's like, you know, I'm not stealing from a dead man. That, you know, when, while we were, you know, Roland, you know, he, he, you know, he was a good person. <laughs> God rest his name is PM and uh, he shared with me he lost his four-year-old son. So, and the strange thing is that when we went into the last hotel, um, he said to me, he gave me a dollar and he said, uh, yo, when, you know, this is, you know, give this to the, uh, give this to the drug dealer, tell him, I said, thanks for the ride. So, I still question, was he on a mission to kill himself? Like, I, you know what I mean? But, you know, that 
And the thing about it is my wife had kicked me out. She let me come home. I, I went out again the next day to um <coughs> to get an ID and she said, Don't you don't even smoke a joint. I didn't make it home. Because somebody said, Yo, you wanna smoke this joint? It's only a joint. It's not cracking nothing. Like, hey, you know what? Hey, why not? So <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> When they say picking up the first one, um, click something in our brains, which is scientifically proven. Like, like in a, in a big book of Alcoholics, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, it says you got the heavy drinker, then you have the alcoholic. <coughs> Excuse me, and they'll tell you the, the heavy drinker can adjust their drinking. The alcoholic cannot, but sometimes the heavy drinker will cross the line into become into the into alcoholism. God damn it! So I'm um, I got a pump. I'm gonna give you get a, get my pump. I'll be right back. So as um I move forward. Um, because I've done this so many times. I just want to, you know, say this. I've done it so many times, got clean, especially with my second wife, 16 years, and she got into the field. You know, she's in uh, mental health and addiction and substance abuse. So um, the anxiety level is crazy because, um, like, now she feels like, okay, maybe he's really going to, you know, stay clean this time, you know, maybe, you know, and, and so the, the the trust is coming back, but the anxiety level is, is, is crazy. Like I have a funeral to go to my aunt passed away and she's like, I'm scared. I'm nervous for you. And I had to explain her that um, you don't have to be nervous for me because I would never dishonor, like, because I didn't take loss when she, so I don't take loss. Well, um, if I'm clean, it's an excuse to use. I'm disappearing for three, four days. I might call her from the precinct. Um, if, if I'm lucky, you know what I mean? And uh, so um, I explained her that, that, you know, that wouldn't just sign my aunt's right. If my aunt was like, my, her name was Allison. She uh, was my biggest supporter. She was, you know, she never talked down to me. She never, um, I went for the lectures with love though, but she never, you know, she, she never stopped believing that I could achieve. Who is she? My my aunt by marriage. Oh, your aunt. Yeah, she. You know, she never stopped believing that I could achieve um sobriety, and I could stop using, and um get my life together. You know, by 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 whatever. Because there are many pathways to recovery. Like um, I just got my recovery coach certificate. I passed that. You know, I'm going on to get my SERPA. Um, so that I can, you know, assist other people that are in the recovery process. You got, you know, Matt, you got medically assisted um, treatment. You have different avenues that people take to address their addiction. This is like not 1935, it's 2022. And um, that's why I called it the recovery community. You know, I don't, you know, um, and I would never like, like a, a young lady I was taking a class with said that she went to an AA meeting and she was um, on to boxing and she, some, somebody treated her really unfairly. 
So you're not clean, you're not, you know, and I was like, yo, I'm sorry that happened to you because, you know, if let's say even if you drink something, they tell you, okay, come to the meeting, just don't share. You know what I mean? Like, you know, because we don't know you're under the influence and it's the alcohol talking or you, you know, you talking. So listen, you know, just, you know, but don't not come to the meeting. So um, you have a lot of people that are very judgmental, but then you have people that are not, you know, it's a very progressive thing. Um, they, there's that substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, you got um, Vivitrol, you got Naltrexone, you have a lot of, you, you know, you got different avenues, you got smart recovery, you got, um, you know, cocaine anonymous, you got different avenues that people can take um, to, you know, find their place and, and find a quality of life because that's what it's really about. It's about finding a quality of life where you can have your self-respect back because that's what I, that's what I got back. And it's not a self-respect where, okay, you know, I'm walking down the street and I'm tough, you know, I'm tough or nobody's going to fuck with me. And, you know, I, it's that, that it's not that type of self-respect because I was talking with, you know, my, my, my brother, Brian, he's, um, he's in recovery, you know, and he was a bouncer. He's a, you know, very, you know, active, you know, in, um, in clubs and stuff like that. And he had said to me, you know, but I don't want to be a pussy. You know, he's younger than me. I'm 53. He's like in his thirties, you know, he's going through, he went through a breakup. And, um, but see, we, we, we get these things that we feel like that define us and, um, we don't want to let go. And I, I read because I read, um, the books I read, like, this is a very, a book learning to begin, learning to begin again, by W.T. Watts, he's a PhD. And it's not a book based on drug addiction or alcoholism. It's recovering from anything, recovering from trauma, recovering from grief, recovering from this 365 day, you know, book where it's every day I read, you know, I read a page and it had a drastic effect on me. Because I also read Zen, um, Zen practice, you know, Hazy Road to Enlightenment. Um, spirituality is a big part of my recovery because my faith takes away the anxiety. Because I used to be anxiety about tomorrow. Will I stay clean? Am I going to fuck up tomorrow? What's going to happen tomorrow? And I'd be mired down by my emotions from the past because, oh, I fucked up. Am I, you know, I'm a piece of shit. I'm this, I'm that. And I'd be mired down from the past and anxious for tomorrow. And my day would be all, you know, twisted up. I wouldn't be able to, you know, appreciate the blessings of the day. Um, so now my faith, you know, plays a big part, you know, because I actively started um, doing Bible study with um, guys like, you know, twice a week. Um, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they're very helpful. Um, is, is that my um, church of choice? No, but they were there, you know, and they were willing to do the studies with me. So um, that's what I did, you know, and as I, because like I'm finding that practice, like knowing is one thing. Like I've had the knowledge and, and understanding for a long time, you know what I mean? But um, without put, without practical application of that knowledge to to my daily life, I can't achieve the desired results that I wanted from attaining and, and, and absorbing the knowledge. So I like the um, way repetition and practice. I like the way you put that using your practical knowledge into everyday actions. It's a, it's a great way to put it because a lot of people learn stuff, but they don't put it into action. That's a fact. 
I was one of them. I could retain knowledge. I'm a wealth of information. But as far as applying it to my life, that's like the people that can give great advice, but their life is a mess, you know, yeah. but they don't give great advice. So um, that repetitious thing, and it all started with a guy named Kevin, another one of the um, brothers from AA. He told me to write a gratitude list when I woke up in the morning. So um, I'm like, write a gratitude list. Okay, I'm grateful. But see, it's, it, I wasn't, I didn't have sincere gratitude. You know, sincere gratitude where, you know, I'm, I'm on God's wake up list. Thank you for waking me up. You know, um, I was a victim of the universe. Why is this stuff happening to me? But most of the things in the situations were self-imposed. You know what I mean? If you take away the drugs and the alcohol and the lifestyle that went with it, I really don't have that many problems. You know what I mean? I mean, and, and I don't worry. Like, okay, I had a biopsy. I'm going to get the results. I'm freaked out. They called me like a week and a half early. I'm like, oh, my God. You know what I mean? I'm so freaking out. Oh, God, no. Because, you know, I had a tumor and cancer runs in my family. So now I'm like, but then I caught myself. And I'll tell you why. Because you see, I see the St. Jude's commercials all the time. And we see these little kids that, you know, are suffering from cancer and they're going through it. And I've seen a lot of kids on YouTube and they're suffering. And they're like, you know, I can't be, I can't wake up in the morning and be depressed. I can't wake up in the morning and be angry. You know, I'm alive today. I'm here today. You know, I, I refuse to feel sorry for myself because self-pity is the highest expression of self-centeredness, you know, and, and I refuse, like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. So, I, and I was at work. So I went back, you know, when I got the message from my wife, I was like, for a second, I freaked. I was like, they're trying to give me a heart attack. Started laughing with my guys I'm working with, you know, I work for moving companies and I went back to work and I was like, it's in God's hands, man, you know, my faith, practicing faith. Like I said, I have faith. I believe me, I have a strong belief in God, unwavering belief. But did I practice on a daily basis or did I try to control everything? You know, having faith is relinquishing a matter of amount, amount of control, you know, and <clears throat> believing in something greater than myself. Okay, I believed in it, but was I really practicing my faith and belief in my higher power and his plans for me? I was not. Now I do that on a daily basis. And these are repetitious things, you know, these are things I do daily. I wake up, I read, I text somebody in the program, few people in the program. I, um, <clears throat> you know, the motivational readings, the uh, spiritual readings. I write every morning, I write, every morning I write. Um, how I feel, what are my thoughts, what, what's going on. And um, like I said, the one constant, like um, knowing that, you know, I'm excited about my life without, you know, using, like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, I'm excited, I want to be the best version of myself I can be on a daily basis, like, I want to see where I go, where, where, you know, I'm 53, where, you know, what can I achieve, what can I do as I move forward in my life, I mean, where, you know, where is it going to take me, you know, and, um, you know, I'm not ashamed, like, I, I listened to this song by, um, staying so far away and you know it says i'm not ashamed of the person i am today today i'm not and no neither is anyone else that cares about me nobody is ashamed of having excuses for me today you know and and to wake up and um not be mired down by that shame and that guilt and um that that, that self-loathing and self-hate is it's, it's a gift you know i have the overwhelming desire to stay sober and that's amazing. That's nothing short of divine intervention. I've been using it for decades. 
You know, that my life centered around, you know, a drink or a drug. I was always only didn't use until I could use again. <clears throat> and um, like, and even now in the room, and my hat off to the people that struggled through it. Like, this is a blessing because I wasn't the guy that wanted to smoke a joint, you know, or wanted to use, even when I was on parole. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to call my sponsor. No, I, I would say the, the wheel started turning. Okay, well, I want to use. Okay, how long is it till I can use? And what am I going to use? And you know what I mean? So the plan has started to come in. So I was never, I never struggled through and, oh, no, you know, because I was going to control it. It was going to be different this time, you know? And that's the same thing I said to myself time and time again. You know, beautiful lies I told myself, you know, and um, to the same results, you know, jails, institutions, the only thing I have, I'm, I'm still here, thank God. I've been shot, had my throat cut, you know, I've been, you know, through, through a lot, and um, I'm blessed to be here. You know, I thank my higher power daily for waking me up and giving me the opportunity to be, you know, the person that he meant me to be. You know, and 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 like I said, I gotta leave leave the person behind that I was in order to become the person that I was meant to be. Does this mean that the the things that it's like my tool belt, like they say for recovery, you got a tool belt. All right, my life skills, the things that I have, and then are they transferable? Some of them, yeah, but some of them are not. You know, since I'm not gonna, you know, use the same skills I would be in the projects at three in the morning. You know trying to catch, you know, you trying to come up and while I'm, you know, working in um on 63rd Street and Lennox Avenue. You know what I mean? This is not it's not the same. It's not transferable skills. Yeah. You know, right. so you gotta leave some things behind. You know, you gotta leave some things behind. And um I don't have a problem with that. You know, because I'm learning to understand that these things they don't define me. You know, um, um I'm not afraid to grow because fear is a big factor. Um, a lot of people say they're not fearful. Like my friend said, I, he's afraid of being perceived as a pussy. You know what I'm saying? So fear is a, is a motivator that stops change. You know what I'm saying? What am I going to be if I'm not this? How am I going to be perceived if I'm not this? And, and that's, that, that stops a lot of growth. You know, so... I, there was a lot of things like like the uh, you know Zen practice that I read about that, and the power of intention is also is a book called The Power of Intention that I read. My intention every day I set my intention. Like you know, if I wake up and my intention is to okay get high, no matter what happened, I got high. So if I wake up and my intention is to stay clean, then I'm going to do the things that I need to do to stay clean. What I'm maintain, what I'm doing now is maintaining the feeling that I have that, you know, keeps me wanting to stay sober. See, that's what I, you know, I, I, I call my sponsor like, yo, I panicked. I woke up one morning. I was like, oh my God, what if I wake up and I don't feel like this anymore? What am I going to do? I'm going to use. Call my sponsor. I'm rabbed. Oh, what about, you know what? He's like, hey, 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 calm down, calm down. It's okay. You're clean today, right? just keeping it in day and that is a powerful tool you know not living in yesterday not being anxious about tomorrow but really appreciating the blessings and gifts of the moment and the day you know and and it's it's really carrying me right now like i have i had all the elements for a good life you know what i mean a beautiful wife children people that care about me 
a job that, you know, whenever you're ready, you know, I can't, I can't have you coming to work and not coming to work, but you're going to get your shit together. You, you always got a job here, you know? So, um, and, and you know, it's, I was, you know, I had to get out of my own way. I had to surrender. They say you can't win unless you surrender. That's a fact because acceptance is a big part of um, growth, you know, and, and I've had a lot of spiritual growth in the last year. Um, I've accepted a lot of hard truths in the last year, you know, um, like my brother, he stopped helping me. He's like, yo, we're not doing that. I'd run the streets for a couple of weeks. I couldn't go home. I knock on the door. I'd want to crash. He cut that off. No more of that. So there's a fine line between somebody enabling you and, you know, and, and then, you know, helping you get better, you know? So, but he, I went through what I had to go through. And it's funny because I, I, as angry and mad as I wanted to be, I couldn't get angry at him. So I was angry at myself, you know, because everybody gets tired. They get, um, um, desensitized. They, they, they guard their feelings because they don't want to go through the pain and, uh, and, and feelings that they go through dealing with you watching a person destroy themselves over and over and over again. You know, with the fear, is he going to come home? Is he going to be okay? Is he going to do it this time? You know, and, and I'm, I'm so blessed to be able to, you know, like a lot of people in treatment, a lot of people that, you know, get into recovery, they don't have anybody left. You know, they, they, they have to work for people to get back into their corner. But um, in, in, in the end analysis right now, I don't need validation from anybody. You know, I don't look for validation from anybody. Um, I do the next right thing. You know, I do the things that I know I need to do. And that's where I get my good feelings from. You know, I, I don't need I don't need external forces. You know, like people get it, you know, they get clean, they get things. You know what I mean? Things make them feel good. New clothes, new car, new, these things make them feel good about themselves. I don't need things. I can get things. Things come and go. You know, I have an authentic, you know, spiritual wellness that, you know, I'm not willing to um let go of. You know, so. I cultivate that. Like they got these things called the nine fruits of the spirit. I'm Christian, you know, joy, love, peace, happiness, gratitude, you know, thankfulness, um, self-control, you know, says against these things, you know, there's no law. So I, I try to um, cultivate these things in my life on a daily basis. Um, the only things I can control are my thoughts, my emotions and my actions. Anything, any, I can't control anybody else. You know, like anger. My, I had a bad anger and my anger was off the meters. If I felt justified in being angry, I went from zero to a hundred, like popping like that, you know? And, um, you know, I, I worked with a counselor who did a workbook on anger about that thick with me. And um, I was just as addicted to anger and rage as I was to the drugs. You know, it, it, it was a, a means to an end. It was my go-to emotion. You know, it was my go-to emotion, anger, anger to rage, my go-to emotion. And I was addicted to that. And I had to learn that, you know, it doesn't happen to me. I choose it. You know, anger is not like go walk in the street and get hit by a bus. No, anger is something that I, I would choose. 
And because I got used to choosing it, I thought it was a response. It's not a response, it's a choice. You know, and that's another thing that I had to learn, being in control of my emotions. Like not feeling is, is, is scary because when you have to feel, and I hear this, it's a regular thing, oh, here I am. Now I'm not using emotions. Yeah, and it's okay to feel. Just like joy comes and goes like the tide. Sure enough, as soon as you feel joy, you're gonna feel sadness. And it's okay to be sad, like my mom passed away. I'm sad, but I can be happy that I'm living the way she wanted me to live. You know what I'm saying? All of these years, she wanted me to be doing the things that I'm doing right now. So I didn't lose another member of my family and I was whereabouts unknown or somebody had to scoop me up and clean me up so I could go to the funeral, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, I, I tend to all four areas, my mental, uh, my spiritual, my emotional, and my physical. These are the four, these are the four things that were most, that, that were you know, destroyed utterly by my addiction. You know, by the disease. Yeah, those are very important. Those are extremely important. Yeah, you know, I have to tend to all of those. Outside of that, you got your social, your financial, your things, but these are the base things that I have to tend to so I can do everything else. Because they, you know, without without one or the other, you know, some so they, they, you sway. If I'm emotionally unstable, then I don't know how to deal with things. And I've gotten high and relapse and I suffer from mental illness also. So you know, it's it's I, I have depression, anxiety disorder, it's PTSD, a lot of different things. So, um, how do you battle those? I used to take a lot of powerful medications, but um, I do. I used to take Depakote, um, Seroquel, Trazodone, Respiridol, but um, I, I I talked to a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist, um, Doctor Said said, you know, we sat down and like my anger issues felt like, but um. Felt like I need, needed to deal more with the depression and the anxiety, um, other than you know the schizophrenia, and 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 the PTSD I had to deal with. So, um, the the, the Depakote and the mood stabilizers and the antipsychotics, she said, had bad side effects, and that maybe she she thought because I could always go back to them. She said so. I so I pray, I meditate, I read, I set my mind in the morning. You know, and this has helped me immensely because it sets my tone for the day. You know, it helps me to confront, you know, the challenges of the day. <clears throat> right in my gratitude list, right? No matter what, when I'm grateful in, in, in the day, in the moment, no matter what I'm confronted with in that day can outweigh the things that I'm grateful for. You know, I could lose somebody. Um, and and this is, it's a scary thought because nobody wants to lose somebody they care about. We don't know what the day holds. So if I lean heavily on my gratitude when I'm confronted with the things and I lean heavily on my face when I'm confronted with the things that, that is called life, this is life. You know, people deal with different things. Like I was watching a YouTube and, it said, and the, the lady had five kids. Two of them got killed. A daughter got raped and murdered by the neighbor and her son got shot in the face by his friend. They were playing with a gun. And she was smiling. And she was talking about it. So, you know, where somebody would have used that as an excuse to fold. Meanwhile, the other three kids that, you know, they have are suffering because they folded because they couldn't deal. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, it's it's like feel and face. This is life, you know? And you're not stuck with the emotions. Emotions and feelings of 
freak all. You know, the good ones, the bad ones, they make us who we are. You know, learning how to endure and, and work through the sadness that we get from the grief that we have from losing someone we care about. From yeah, processing emotions is very important. Processing emotions is really, really... Yes, it definitely the, is. The vital For thing to get done. Sitting I mean, in them. If you sit in the negative emotions... Because that's what I used to do. Because that's all I knew was negative emotions, the misery, the self-pity. The, so it, it's like, it's how can you tell me not to be angry? How can you tell me not to feel bad? Like, I, I'm human. But the object is to feel, move forward, not to sit there and, and, and wallow in it. So Let me ask you this. Um, Let me ask you this. We're getting towards the end here. Do you have any advice for people okay. watching? Do you have any pe- advice for people watching and listening? Yes, I do. Um, get a network like AA, NA, AA, you know, or out, you know, um, Addicts Anonymous. Get a group, a fellowship of people that you know of of like minds. Um, I can't. I could never do this alone. You know, I tried to do this alone over and over again. Um, if you're not Blessed with the one desire to stay sober, but you know you have to because they say, um, I got sober because I had to. I stayed sober because I needed to. I remain sober because I want to. You know, you have to put in the footwork. You have to do the job. You have to do the work. You have to be repetitious with positive things. You, 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 and you have to learn how not to fall back in the old ways of dealing with your emotions and situations that you're confronted with with life. It takes work, it takes commitment. Commitment plus consistency equals tangible results in any doing, any area of life. So with sobriety, that's what I do on a daily basis. I prepare for the unprepared moment because I understand that I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic, and it shows the sun rises and sets. There'll come a day when I might get sidelined, bombed. Oh, a joint would be good right now, you know? So I have to be prepared for that. So I guess get a get a sober network around you. For anybody out there, get a sober network. Um, your your loved ones can be your network also because they know your struggle. So if you can't get in touch with somebody in your network, you call them. Anything not to pick up the first one. Anything that just don't pick up the first one. That's the best advice I can give anybody. Great. I really appreciate that. So, do you have anything you want to add in? Um, love yourself. You know, appreciate the life that's yours. You know, they say we all get two lives. The second, the second one begins when uh, we realize that we only get one. You know, don't feel sorry for yourself. Leave yesterday behind, okay? You can't change it. You can do the next right thing today, though. You know, you can do the next right today. That's great. So I think that's a good place to wrap up. How do you feel? I feel I feel really good. This is um the ability to share a little bit of my story, and I hope it can inspire somebody because I'm somebody that was up and down for over thirty years, in and out of it, wouldn't you know, suffer from a disease of addiction until I surrendered and, and admitted to myself that I have a disease. And that I can't use anything. 
I can't use any. Not only that, it's not that I can't. Now I'm blessed and I don't want to. I'm excited about my life. I'm excited about being clean. I'm excited to see where I go. I'm excited to see the person that, you know, I become. Yeah, it does feel like you're in a second life. But that's a good place to wrap up. I think for everybody listening and watching, if you like what you saw on her, go below, give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can find us on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. You can also go to addicts-anonymous.com. There's a lot of literature available there for free. There's also a ton of different resources under our resources page. So I hope you guys check it out. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And until next time.